Okay, well, first of Kings 10, we've got Solomon really in all his glory, haven't we? Now, it's quite possible to read this chapter and, and argue that it's uh, all a type of the, uh, the future kingdom of the Lord Jesus. This was Israel really at its greatest extent, at its most prosperous, with the Gentile world coming up to the, to the King of Israel and hearing his wisdom and everything being very prosperous and the people being very happy standing there so the Queen of Sheba says hearing his wisdom and uh, the great throne where he, he sits and every, everything's hunky-dory, everything's happy and uh, there is a case that can be made for that and yet there's another case that can be made for all this having very sinister sort of uh, implications to it that really this kingdom of, of Solomon was not in fact the true kingdom of God at all that this was Solomon even at the start of his reign seriously astray from God now the, the hints are, are subtle, I accept that but when you put them together, maybe on their own they wouldn't mean that much, but when you put them together I think you can build quite a solid case, I think verse 14 is maybe what gets us on this track of thinking that he gets 666 talents of gold in one year and straight away you, uh, you start to wonder 666 is that really just coincidental that this is the number of course that we meet in in Revelation the number of the man who is in fact the, the Antichrist who might appear to be Christ but is in fact not and then reading the whole record of Babylon's destruction and what Babylon in Revelation is like Babylon also trades at sea and trades in the very same things that Solomon trades in according to what we've just read here these uh, precious trees, gold, silver, ivory all these things, this wonderful trading empire and in fact the description of Babylon therefore in, in Revelation 17 and 18 is actually based on this chapter here, 1 Kings 10, about the kingdom of Solomon. Now, we start then to uh, think a little bit more critically about, about Solomon. He offers you know, thousands of sacrifices, doesn't he? 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. But wait a minute, is that what God wanted? Hebrews 10 verse 4 makes it very clear, quoting from the Old Testament, that God did not desire thousands of sacrifices. He did not want that. He wanted a contrite, humble, repentant heart. Not thousands of sacrifices. But that's what Solomon offered. And he builds this temple. Well, God had actually said to David through Nathan that he really didn't want this. That in fact he wanted to, to build up a, a house, a dynasty for, for David, through Solomon. He wanted to do something for them. He, he didn't need this house to be built. And you could argue that in fact this, this was really not what God wanted at all. Although he went along with it, rather like he didn't want them to have a any kind of human king, but he, he went along with it. Acts 17 verse 24 The God that made the world and all things therein, he being Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. He doesn't want this. And it, in, in Act 7, when Peter makes his defense in the context of, of uh, having a bit of a go at the, the temple cult of, of his day, 
he talks uh, about the uh, the history of Israel, and um, he says that uh, David found favor on the side of God. This is Acts 7:46. Asked to find a habitation for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. How be it? The Most High dwells not in houses made with hands. Those words, but and how be it, indicate to me a kind of a criticism. That Stephen read Solomon very negatively. That David, he says, wanted to to find a habitation for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house, how be it, the Most High does not dwell in houses. Because the prophet says, the heaven is my throne, what manner of house will you build me, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then he goes on, Stephen goes on to say that you, his audience in the first century, are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do ye. And I, reading immediately in the context there, the fathers who resisted the Holy Spirit would include Solomon for building a house when God said that's not what he wanted. So then, back in 1 Kings 10, we have here Solomon portrayed in all his glory. And when Jesus says that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one little flower that God has made, that's Matthew 6, 29 and 30, uh, I mean, he, this is the comment of Jesus upon 1 Kings 10. That, that's what I would say. Reading Isaiah 2, we have a passage there, Isaiah 2, 6 to 13, that talks about Israel's weakness. And it says that Israel at that time was to be judged by God because they were full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. They are full of horses, full of chariots, of idols, the work of their own hands, the cedars of Lebanon. Now this is all Solomon language. Solomon is being set up, I I would argue, and these are just a few of the examples, um, as someone who right at the start of his reign, despite all this trapping of love for God, and all this appearance of obedience and zeal for God and prosperity and being a type of Christ, it's kind of riddled with serious weakness. He is, I suggest, an anti-Christ. Now, anti does not mean against, that is how it is taken. Um, but, but, but really, in, in Greek anyway, the idea of an anti-somebody is not someone who is against. An anti-Christ is not somebody that is against Christ. It is someone who is similar to, who is posing as, who appears as Christ, but is in fact a false Christ. And I think this is what's going on with Solomon. Now, we are here not to criticize Solomon. We are here to examine ourselves before God's word. The one impression you get from Solomon is that this uh, apparently very zealous life that he lived, of, of service to God, of knowing God's wisdom, knowing the truth, knowing all the theory, that this was almost a case of schizophrenia. There was another Solomon, who was an anti-Christ, who, who was in fact the very opposite of all this. So we examine ourselves and, and we look at our own lives, particularly in the light of, of the cross and, and the Son of God hanging upon it, the, the real Christ. And what do we see? We, we do not see only negatives. We, we, we see, I, I think, our 
belief, our wisdom in some sense, our, our knowledge of that wisdom, our commitment to the God of Israel, uh, to, to the things of his kingdom. And yet, could it not be that actually there is an unpleasant other side to all of us? That there are things that we do, even within God's service, where, wherein our motives are wrong, when our motives are actually sinful, that we can serve God, apparently, when we're actually serving ourselves and our own self-interest. Now, I cannot make that self-examination for you. All I can say is that here we are in front of God's Word, and we happen to be reading at this time about Solomon and this chapter about him. Now, is it not that all of the systems that have opposed God have in fact appeared on the surface to be the real kingdom of God when actually they were not. For example, when Rabshaki is there besieging the Jews in, uh, in Jerusalem, he says, come out and surrender to me and I will take you away to a land like your own and you will sit under your own vine and under your own fig tree and have a nice time. And he's quoting there the words of Micah 4, who was a contemporary prophet it seems at that time. Uh, he's quoting the words about God's future kingdom and he's saying, I can give you that. My kingdom that I offer you is sort of the kingdom of God. And when we sin, I think that we do not simply close the book and say, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but I'm going to do what I want, and that uh, we steal our conscience and shut our uh, conscience or whatever and just go do whatever it is and say whatever it is. I don't think that the majority of us sin in that way. We sin in a somewhat more complex way because the, the flesh and the mind of the flesh is uh, a deceiver. We, we know that. We deceive ourselves that what we are doing is righteous. And only if we come to self-examination and, and, and repentance uh, afterwards do we realize that is not the case and that we deceived ourselves. A classic example would be, there we are in conversation with somebody and somebody else's name comes up. And uh, in that split second where we decide, shall I say something negative about that person? Shall I gossip about that person or not? We think, shall I, shall I not? Shall I, shall I not? And we think, well, yes, I should, because you, you, you know what, this, this guy I'm talking to, he really needs to know that uh, I think that he, uh, he probably drinks or that, uh, you know what, uh, I think, uh, pretty sure she, uh, she smokes, you know, uh, you, you, you can, uh, well, I think you can, you can smell it on her, you know. Um, and in that moment, we think, uh, well, yeah, he needs to know this. But if we later examine ourselves, we think, yeah, well, I was just gossiping, wasn't I? But at the time, I kidded myself, I was doing the right thing. Now, that, that is a very primitive example, that one about gossiping in the, uh, in the heat of the moment, but I think that a lot of our failings run that way. If I take a break, oh, well, you know, I, I, I won't be so stressed, and uh, I, I, I'll be able to be a much better person if I commit sins X, Y, and Z. And it's only afterwards that, that you come to, to yourself and think, no, 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 no. You know, this was a throwing down of the cross. This was a shutting the Bible and going my own way. But at the time, one does not uh, persuade themselves in that way. And we sin like this every day. And it's no, it's no good saying we don't. If you're feeling that you don't, I just say you, you better do some more self-examination. 
So then, here we have it with Solomon. And, and there's a lot in the Bible about Solomon. And I think he's set up there for someone that we should uh, have a think about as, as a springboard to our own personal, very personal self-examination. So then, Queen of Sheba is here back in First Kings 10 and she says, Well, I had heard about your acts, and the RV margin in the Hebrew seems to mean words. I had heard in my own land, this is uh, verse 6, I had heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I didn't believe the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it, and the half was not told me. Happy are your men, happy are these your servants which stand continually before you and that hear your wisdom. Blah, blah. Now, just uh, in passing, she says she did not believe the words until she came and saw it. Uh, and just, uh, that's just basic uh, thing to, to observe for all of us, that people will not believe words as they stand. They will not read books uh, and be persuaded of Christ personally. They need to see that truth that wisdom lived out in practice and then they will personally believe it I, don't, I didn't believe the words until I saw them in practice she says that's uh, just in passing but I, I think it's worth noting that, that, that's uh, not uh, related to our theme I, I want to develop but just in passing so anyway she says you, your servants are so happy because they stand and hear your wisdom but chapter 12 Solomon dies the people come and complain to his son, your father whipped us, he abused us, uh, and please can you, can you just lay off us. The people are angry with Solomon. And in fact you read about these levies that he raised uh, from all Israel and how he had up to 80,000 people working just quarrying stones. There's tremendous uh, amount of labor, and it wasn't all Gentile labor. He raised those levies of labor also from within Israel. And so anyway, when he dies, the people come to his son and say, Your father whipped us. And his, his, the son says, uh, says the same. He, he admits that, and he says, And I'm going to beat you even harder. So then, what happened? Something changed between chapter 10 and chapter 12. Something went seriously wrong here. This is an ideal that's being presented here in chapter 10. But something went seriously wrong. Why did Solomon mess up so badly? Well, that's a, a huge question, but um, I, I want to give a, a few uh, comments on that to help us in our self-examination. I think one of the reasons I think that Solomon messed up was because all his apparent wisdom and all his apparent uh, zeal for the temple was in fact living out parental expectation rather than he himself believing it. If you look up all the times that Solomon uses the phrase David my father or my father David, he uses this a couple of hundred times. He is obsessed with the fact David is my father or David was my father. And so many times he says, I am reigning in my father's stead, in my father's place. And so as time went on, he realized that actually he was simply living out parental expectation. David was obsessed with this idea of building a temple and he prepared for it and Solomon came and did it. He lived out his father's hope and expectation. And straight away you, you take a message there that... Of course, it's a good thing to raise your kids, knowing the gospel, and see them baptized. 
But as that goes on over certainly two, three, four generations, as it has done, I, I know, amongst many who are hearing these words, I mean, that's great and that's how it should be, or one can't say it any other way, but there's a very real possibility that people are simply living out parental expectation without actually getting it on a personal level. And I think that's why God brings a lot of suffering into the lives of those kinds of people. I mean, psychological, mental, personal suffering, to make them get real, to shed all the scaffolding. But they are believers in Christ not because mum and dad always wanted that, but because they themselves have personally come to Christ. Now, because of David, uh, Solomon, as I said, living out his father's expectations, he also repeats his father's weakness. Now, his father was weak with women, and they had a whole load of uh, wives. And Solomon, well, he, he, uh, <laughs> he caps that. I mean, the guy has like a thousand. He takes you know, whatever woman he fancies, and he, he's you know, up to a thousand total of concubines and wives, etc., yeah, it's only 365 days in a year, so I, I mean this was a complete just obsession with, with women, which began with David, and he thought he could continue that. And he, the weakness of David was repeated a thousandfold in his son. We've read here about Solomon and his horses, and building his cities for, for his horses, and chariots and horses, etc. Now, this was not allowed. You know that passage in Deuteronomy 17, and it's uh, maybe just, just worth reading that again, Deuteronomy 17, where the king of Israel is told that when he uh, becomes king, verse 16, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, exactly what happened to Solomon. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold, when well, he did that. And it shall be, when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law. And I take this law to refer to those couple of verses about how the king should behave himself. He shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. That was the, the kind of king that God wanted, a king whose heart was on the same level as his people. So he's told, do not multiply wives. Do not multiply horses. Do not take horses out of Egypt. Do not multiply silver and gold. And write this out and keep on reading this text. And Solomon does exactly the very opposite. But why does he do this? Let's just think for a minute about multiplying all these horses. Okay, in the second of Samuel chapter 8 verse 4 we have an example of where David came into a load of horses and chariots 2 Samuel 8 verse 4 uh, he has this fight with uh, Rehab king of Zobar and David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen so he takes uh, a thousand chariots it's a chariot plus horse David held or hamstrung all the chariot horses but kept 
a hundred chariots. And I, I understand that the idea of chariot here means chariot plus horses. So he takes a thousand chariots plus horses, but he keeps a hundred of them, and he hamstrings nine hundred. Now, what do you want to hamstring those horses for? I think it was a way to try to get round the command not to multiply horses. So he says, yeah, okay, well I won't use them as uh, chariot horses, military horses, I will hamstring them. Now what do you do with a hamstrung horse? Well, you use it in agriculture, grinding, a bit of ploughing possibly, well, certainly for grinding, uh, but, but the main use of hamstrung horses is for breeding. Uh, this guy's got 900 of them. And he keeps anyway 100 of them without hamstringing them. So it's as if he's saying, well, I shall be 90% obedient. I got 1,000 of, of uh, chariots and horses. Okay, I'll, um, I mustn't multiply these, so I, I'll get rid of 900 of them. Uh, but even then, well, I will find a, uh, a loophole around the law. So okay, I will hamstring them, but I will use them for breeding produce more in another generation and yes I'll, I'll, I'll keep 10% for myself Solomon saw that Solomon saw his dad do that and when it comes his turn to start getting loads of horses uh, he just goes out of his mind on this, he has thousands of them, he has so many that the guy actually has to build store cities to keep them in now you take a simple lesson there our weaknesses we pass on to our kids in one way or another. There's no area in spiritual endeavor where we can say, yeah, okay, well, on that one, that's my weak point. Okay, yeah, well, I'll just let that one go. You can't do that. You, you, you can confess that uh, I have failed in this matter, and I am not Jesus, and I'm not perfect. That, 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 that's different. I'm talking about this justification which David was into and this uh, making legal loopholes around the whole thing. This is, I think, very displeasing to God. Okay. He justified himself by the fact that he had wisdom. He thought that that was good enough. The fact that he, you know, he, he had all this, all this wisdom. And so I think he almost felt that he was untouchable by personal failure because he had wisdom. Or as people today would say, we have the truth. We know the things of the gospel. We know the wisdom of God because we read the Bible. And the very possession of that wisdom can in fact mislead us because, we, because we're dealing with it all the time, and particularly if we are sharing it or teaching it with other people, uh, as someone did, we can fail to take it to ourselves personally. And this is what happened very clearly with Solomon. I mean, he has all these wives, uh, Gentile wives, that turned away his heart, exactly classic example, exactly as Deuteronomy 17 had prophesied they would, if that's what he did. But he writes all through Proverbs, about, watch out, my son, for the Gentile woman. The older English Bibles say the strange woman. Well, it doesn't mean the woman with kind of 
dyed pink hair. Um, the strange woman is the Gentile woman. That, that's what it means. So all the way through Proverbs, he keeps on and on. Watch out for women. Watch out for Gentile women. They will lead you astray, my son. This is the wisdom of God that he gave me. Now, my son, just take it from me, son. So what he's saying in Proverbs. Now, when did he write Proverbs? Well, it seems he wrote that towards the beginning of his reign, because when he gets this wisdom at the beginning of his reign, then he writes, we're told, all these Proverbs. He writes them out. And he gets famous because of them. So right at the start, he's telling people, don't marry Gentile women, whilst he is going out and doing it on a scale that probably no single male has ever done. It's incredible that a guy keeps on about this issue, but then goes and does it. And really, here in 1 Kings 10, the whole chapter, you could say, is actually written in terms of the passage in Deuteronomy 17 that warns about the king of Israel not multiplying horses, chariots, not multiplying silver and gold, and not multiplying wives. It almost seems that this is a, a direct allusion. The whole chapter is written to show Solomon disobeyed that absolutely to the end but as I said sin and we're talking about this as I say not because we revel in uh, Solomon's mess up uh, but to elicit in ourselves self-examination in all this he seems to always have some justification in his mind for example um, this whole thing again about horses, which, which I think was just an obsession for him. Verse 28-29 here in First Kings 10 seems to be saying that Solomon was like a middleman, that he brought horses out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 17, the king of Israel shall not bring horses out of Egypt. But he brings them out of Egypt to sell to, 29, the Hittites and the kings of Syria. And he sells them for whatever, 600 shekels of silver for a chariot and a horse 150. So he's a middleman. But it so happened that he himself strangely ended up with thousands of horses, so many he had to build chariot uh, cities to, to store them, to keep them in. So then, this is rather like the person who thinks, I can be a middleman in something or other, I can deal with something quite fine, uh, but I won't personally be affected by it. simple example would be the person who sells alcohol all day long, thinking, well, I'm only selling alcohol, I could be selling, I could be selling chocolate, I, I could be selling cars or whatever, but I happen to be selling alcohol. But it's only just passing through my fingers. Who ends up, strangely enough, an alcoholic? Now, yeah, th th these are primitive examples I'm giving, very, very simplistic. Um, but you know, I think, what I'm saying, that we all think, I can let this stuff pass through my hands and not be touched by it. It's rather like, uh, I think maybe the most obvious, uh, well, common example, shall, shall I say, uh, is what we read, what we watch, what we look at, on computers, on TV screens, on black print, on white paper, and we think, well, I can cope with this. I, I'm only looking at it. I'm only reading it. I'm not involved with this. But bit by bit, we are. And bit by bit, we are changed by all that nonsense. And if you think I'm having a go at watching 
worldly movies and TV and all that, you'd be right. You'd be dead right. Because this is what happens. You're going to fill your mind with the junk that is called entertainment. That is exploring sin, basically, and inviting us to vicariously participate in it. Don't think that this will not affect you. It does. And here, here you have it in Solomon. Now again, you know, watching uh, stuff on, on TV or whatever, uh, and then getting influenced ultimately in some way by it, this, uh, I, I think, is just one of a whole load of examples. And again, the purpose of us doing this study is to elicit self-examination. What are we letting pass through our fingers, as it were, thinking, well, this is a, I'm just a middleman in all this. I, I'm just looking at this. I, I'm just involved with this. Uh, when actually, in the end, it can take us over. So then Solomon, here in 1 Kings 10, he's, his servants are all happy, etc. And then, by chapter 12, they're complaining that uh, you abused us. You abused the whole of Israel. You whipped us, and his son even admits that was the case. You know, what went wrong? There was something went wrong in Solomon's attitude to people. This man who thought that he could... Uh, be a people-loving person by physically building a temple and by asking God for lots of wisdom, for lots of academic intellectual truth, which he then taught to people. This man, this very same man, ended up abusing people on a huge scale. And I, I, I see uncanny similarities with a lot of truly abusive people that I have known and do know who are active members of their church, their ecclesia, uh, who have a huge amount of truth, a huge amount of wisdom, uh, and who talk about this and share this uh, w with others, and uh, do their, as it were, their building projects, and yet are terribly, terribly abusive and not caring for people. So the fact that we possess truth that we know divine wisdom. This does not make you a people person. This does not make you the caring, loving, humble person that God seeks more than anything else. Now, in 1 Kings 12 verse 14, it says that Solomon whipped the people. And he uses the same idea in his own Proverbs, in Proverbs 26 verse 3, where he says that the fool should be whipped. I think he got so up himself with his own wisdom and truth that he possessed that he started to despise people who, in his opinion, didn't have it. And he ended up whipping them. Whereas he, according to Ecclesiastes, he kept his wisdom all the way through. All through his wine and madness, he still kept on with his knowledge of God's truth. And yet he ended up abusing his brethren. Now Deuteronomy 17 says again, he should write out that law about loving the Lord God personally, keeping personally his commandments, not multiplying silver, gold, chariots, horses and women, so that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. And his heart was lifted up. Knowledge puffs up. Paul says, and I almost wonder if he's thinking about Solomon when he says that, because that is just so true. 
that the very possession of truth is a wonderful thing and can do a huge amount of good for people. And the spreading of the gospel and the spreading of God's ways and God's teaching is of course what we should be doing, don't get me wrong. But if it's not done with any personal sense of involvement in it ourselves, of having been personally transformed by it, all it does is to lift up our hearts above others to our own condemnation. So much of the Proverbs are of course true and are given to him by God and are inspired, but I have a whole list, and the time is running out, but I have a whole list of, of various proverbs where it seems to me Solomon says these to justify himself. For example, he says many times that God gives wisdom to the man who pleases him. Well, yes, that, that is true insofar as it goes, but Solomon was saying, well, because I've got wisdom, therefore I'm okay with God. Well, no. <laughs> the mere possession of wisdom is not enough to make us right with God. It's not just intellectual justification. Uh, Proverbs 25 verse 5 is another one. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Well, yes, um, Solomon was very eager to establish his throne, and when he comes to the throne, he acts not like David did, who forgave his enemies and showed grace to them. He kills them one by one. He gets rid of Joab, gets rid of Shimei. He, he just kills all his people. In, it seems to me a, a designed contrast with what David did when he came to the throne and had you know, his enemies and people who betrayed him all around him he loved them and showed grace and compassion so when Solomon says that well you know the throne is established in righteousness by a king destroying the wicked from before him well yes um, yes it is true but you can see him saying it in self-justification. And so much of what he says about kings in the Proverbs, and he has quite a bit to say about the king uh, in, in the Proverbs, uh, that a king is from God and can't be argued with. Um, if you fear God, then you will also fear the king, and you will not meddle with them that are given to change. Well, yes, I can imagine him saying that to justify it himself and putting himself as king on a level with God and beyond criticism um, say a lot of those proverbs about the king are true as they are uh, in, in, in a sense are being used by Solomon I think to justify himself so then we can use God's truth as a means of self justification so summing up I think the big difference between David and Solomon was that David had sinned, or, well, he, he recognised, let's put it that way, he recognised his sin. And there was an appropriate humility, and there was an appropriate forgiveness, understanding of grace, and that is what established him. That's what made his life, as it were, a success. With Solomon, there is no sense at all, it seems, of personal sin or failure. I mean, he, he rattles off a few pseudo-humble words in some sort of uh, Uriah Heap fawning kind of way when he dedicates a temple and says, oh, no, you're so great, oh God, you know, you fill heaven and earth and who am I, sort of thing. And there he is, spreading his hands before the whole of Israel, praying in front of all of them, um, sort of being proud about his humility, it seems. And again, you wonder if Jesus had that in mind, where in the context of saying that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one little lily 
he, he says uh, also about when you pray, go into your go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret, uh, not you know posing around in front of the whole of Israel like Solomon did. So uh, apart from that, I see no evidence even of any interest in the concept of humility. I see no sense of personal sin, of, of the wonder of grace and sin forgiven. I see none of that at all in Solomon. And that ended up in his heart being lifted up above his brethren and in the huge change that happened between 1 Kings 10 where Queen of Sheba says, wow, your people are, your men are so happy because they're hearing your wisdom, all your people are so happy. And chapter 12 where Israel spit on Solomon's grave kind of thing and say, you beat us and you abused us left, right and centre. We have had enough. Now, we look at ourselves. And life is a journey in the sense that we are all moving somewhere. It's not just that some people are on a journey and other people sit still. We're all moving someplace. And where are you going and where am I going in our basic care for people? Are we getting hard-hearted? Are we moving towards the change that happened between 1 Kings 10 and 1 Kings 12? where we're becoming lifted up above others, superior attitudes, treating people like fools, you know, the fool's back should be uh, beaten, uh, should be whipped, and that's what Solomon said, and he goes and whips the whole of Israel. Are we getting conceited? Because you know, that, that is, that's what God so hates, human pride, particularly human pride related to knowledge, and particularly related to knowledge about him that I know more than you do about God my views of him and Jesus are better than yours and are more biblical and I'm right and therefore you are totally wrong you know th- th- this is so abhorrent to God and this is what happened with Solomon and, and he ended up basically not a caring person not a sensitive person and we know from Ecclesiastes the misery spiritually in which the guy died now you know seeing that these things are, are life and death we're talking about eternal futures here we really must look at ourselves I know we are saved by grace I, oh, I'm always on about that as you know I, I don't doubt that but all the same we must be looking seriously at the direction in which we are going and we're given Solomon to help us do just that